Summer in the city, back of my neck getting dirt and gritty. Summer, summer, summer. It's like a merry-go-round. Summer reads. Summer reads. Summer reads. Summer reads. Summer reads. Summer reads. That's right, listeners. The best part about this episode, it's not the news. <laughs> we need a break. We need a break from all this ugliness in the world. So sit with us, listen to our recommendations, grab one of these books, and read it before the end of the summer. Your brain needs a break, and these books will provide the necessary sustenance. Please enjoy our Summer Reads episode. All right, so we're doing a very, very, very quick table talk today just to get our Summer Reads episode off the ground. And we're going to talk briefly about the book There, There by Tommy Orange. It's a brand new novel by a young uh, Cheyenne Arapaho writer. He's a 2014 McDowell Fellow and 2016 Writing by Writers Fellow. He was a, he's a recent graduate of the MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. We have both read this book at at this point, and I, I want to start by a tweet that I found by a woman named Janelle. Uh, she wrote, The prologue to There There by Tommy Orange should be mandatory reading for all Americans. Amen. We should know the full story of this country, pain, blood, and genocide, as well as appropriation of the pain in culture, hashtag Native history. So the, the prologue talks about um, sort of like the history and presence of the symbol of the Indian head. I, and I, and it's really nonfiction. I mean, yeah, the the it's, it's, it's real. A, the structure of the book is is fascinating in the sense of there are these nonfiction moments as the prelude and the interludes that are history. They're history lessons, and they are not luxury or super didactic. They fit into the flow of the fiction of the fictional narrative. So, but it also gives the reader a reminder of the pain that so many of the characters are referring to. And so, you know, it's interesting because one of the, I guess one of the, I hate to call it revolutionary because it shouldn't be, but it's, it's a much less traditional approach to a Native American fictional story. It's not set on a reservation. It's set in the city of Oakland, California. So yes. it's it's about urban natives. It's about urban native people, um, which is something that we don't, we really don't see anywhere in our culture, but we definitely really don't see that in fiction, even by indigenous authors. I mean, we see a lot of our favorite stories, which are set on reservations. We don't really see them set in a city of today, of very much here and now. And that's, I know that's one of the things we, we both, I think we both like that, the fact that it's yeah. very contemporary. Um, and the contemporary, in, uh, they call themselves urban Indians a lot in the text, like the urban Indian experience that I noticed they would bring up a lot. One of the parts that I liked in one of the interludes, and this won't give anything away, is this paragraph 
where it talks about history. So, so much of this book is about space and history. Mm -hmm. And the there, there is explained, but it's, it's, has several layers to, to uh, the reader. So I liked this part about blood and it's talking about how blood is so confusing. We've talked about this before on the myth busting episodes um, and wounds and it, the wound that was made when white people came and took all that they took has never healed. An unattended wound gets infected, becomes a new kind of wound. Like the history of what actually happened became a new kind of history. All these stories that we haven't been telling all this time, that we haven't been listening to, are just part of what we need to heal. Not that we're broken, and don't make the mistake of calling us resilient. To not have been destroyed, to not have given up, to have survived, is no badge of honor. Would you call an attempted murder victim resilient? And I liked that paragraph because it is all about, the st- there's, it's told from a variety, I think maybe 12 different viewpoints, mm-hmm. and it is all about storytelling. Now their stories all do come together at the end at a powwow. So there is a narrative arc that's moving all the characters to the same space. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to tell you what happens there, but know that it is a powerful last third of the book. It really is, and I we, we talked about how we don't want to spoil this for you because we really, really want you to read this book, but let me tell you... Uh, when you read this book, the cacophony of the narrative, the, those stories, those individuals, and how they're all threaded together, I mean, it, it kind of reminded me the structure, the framing a little bit of um, Plague of Doves by Louise Erdrich, or, or maybe even like in film, Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, where you have these sort of seemingly disparate storylines and characters, but they all do end up coming together. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, with that, if you stick with it, the end is incredibly intense, but it also felt to me like a prayer. Yeah. Like the whole last section of that book was, I mean, it's beautiful, it's poignant, it's it's just, I just don't want to give anything away, and but it, it's... And it's not, oh. and it, the book is not an academic exercise. No. Like, I read this on the beach. Yeah. You know, somebody saw, I was getting a pedicure, Great and somebody characters. saw me with this book, and they're like, oh, you know, what? how would you describe that? I'm like, it's a great summer book. It, for me, it's a beach read. If you're a reader, it can be a beach read. But this is, it's not overly, it's not academic, no. it's not didactic. Like, it's actually a good story and good oh, yeah. characterization. I can see why there's so much buzz about it right now over Tommy Orange's text. So I, I think it would be a great summer read, but your brain doesn't feel like it's melting, right? Yeah. Like, it's, you feel like you're getting something out of it, but it's a, at the same time a really good read. Yeah, there's a lot of meat there. There's yeah. a lot of different characters, and you'll find, like, well, uh, what what is her name? One of the one of the grandmothers that I love. It's Jackie uh, Redfeather. But well, there's Jackie Redfeather, okay. and then there's um, Viola Violet uh, Bearshield. Yeah, fi- she's names. so some of the women characters are just really all. There's so many. All the, the characters, characters are so wonderful. great, and and, and it's, human and human and real. It's a fun read, but it's going to also, oddly, even though it's not an academic text, text, I think it's going to teach you a lot. I mean, especially yes. since we've talked Agreed. about the idea that a lot of people just assume that Native peoples aren't here anymore. And then when you do read about them, you that there's always that connection to reservations. But no, this is, this is showing Native people, a particular group of Native peoples, in a much more real way, yes, in fiction, but much more real and much more of today. I mean, there's references to things like, I don't know more. And, yeah, and I was there, like, right? I know. Like all those things that we've heard about in the news. Drones and drones, yes. And Facebook and the technology and social media and 
things that just anybody would be able to grasp onto. And the review in Paris Review says, what is perhaps most exciting about Orange and his peers is that they are unafraid to break old molds of theme, style, and structure handed down by the earlier generation's greatest, what they call it, the greatest Indian hits. Oh. Right? So the prior generations of amazing novelists. Yes, Ceremony and, and Alexi and people like that. That, yeah. they, that basically those, like especially Alexi, like there is a new generation coming yes. up and he is part of this. And I know he is friends with Therese My. I don't know how to pronounce her name, but the person who wrote Heartberries, Therese yeah. Mayotte. Yeah. Um, which He's, is another book that they're I friends. loved. They're friends. They're he friends. thanks her <laughs> in the, in the, and just I think that they're two of the most. They're just two of the most interesting writers right now. Yeah. Not and the fact that they're indigenous is bonus. Yeah. But they're just two of the most. I think two of the best writers writing right now. Yeah. Just the the level of storytelling. Yeah. Right. The meat of the story. The how interesting it is. It's a story. It's a story you haven't heard before. Correct. And that really just makes it so. Fantastic, but also a relatable story. Oh, very much relatable. And then this other part of Paris Review says Orange's book is set in the city, eliding the reservation dispatches that have dominated Native fiction over the decades. So, mm. like, if you are a fan of some of those earlier generations of writers of Indigenous writers, which we are, this is going to look very different. It's going to sound and feel very different, which yes. is a good thing. Today, more than seven out of ten Native people live in cities. So with their there, Native Lit is catching up to that demographic reality. Cool. So it's sort of setting Native peoples in a more, I guess I could contemporary. say, contemporary, yeah. realistic yeah. setting. Yeah. The characters are amazing. And I just want to give one quick shout out to also try also maybe you might want to read Trail of Lightning by Rebecca Roanhorse. That's another brand new novel. There's a story that just came out recently. Here's five speculative fiction writers, indigenous fiction writers you should be reading. She's also one of them, along with Tommy Orange and Therese Mayotte. Again, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Yeah. <laughs> but um, Trail of Lightning is, uh, is another really incredible, it's like a post-America. Uh, Dineta is sort of the Navajo. Diné is what they call themselves, and it's this world that has risen up in a, a post-America, post-big water, like there's a flood and, you know, there's these pockets of people that are left to slay the monsters, as it were. Um, it's also a really good summer read. I'm about two-thirds of the way through that, but I definitely recommend They're There. Yes, and my other two summer read picks of They're Similar Thematically, one is Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders, and the other is Sing, Unburied Sing by Jesmyn Ward, who won the National Book Award for that book and Salvage the Bones. But both of those novels are thinking about the liminal space between life and death and ancestors and how we deal with those who have died and how the dead deal with those who are still alive. So, And they're both excellent reads. So if you're looking for some things to add to your list, we wanted to do this episode to uh, suggest a bunch of things to inspire your summer reading while not having your brain atrophy yeah. completely. Well, yeah, and, and to take, honestly, to take a break from yeah. the uh, amazing, um, intense, daily chaos that we're bombarded with in the news. I mean, it's been a really intense couple of years. It's been a really intense summer. It's been an intense month, I think. And it's okay to step away and let your brain focus on something that's not the news. And this is a good way to do that. So yeah. pick up one of these books and give your brain a break. Yeah, reading has always been solace for me. Mm -hmm. So all the books that I recommended and that we've talked about, I think, have been good solace. Let's read something this yeah. summer that is fiction yeah. and lets your brain kind of step out, step aside 
out of reality for a few few hours. Yeah, and so the rest of this episode will be, I'm going to pull the media minutes where we talk about books. So you'll hear um, some additional book reads that we are we have recommended in the past. And as you know, our media minutes are like a minute to two minutes long. So it's going to be this list that's coming up of media minutes of books we've recommended that we still recommend. But this is, these are our new these editions. These are our new editions. <laughs> we both wanted to read this book, so we got to read it. So go have some summer fun reading, folks. I am not a comic book lover. I didn't grow up poring over them. I had a few Fantastic Fours and Wonder Womans. I've always preferred realistic fiction. So my deep love for the Bitch Planet comic series sometimes catches even me by surprise. Kelly Sue DeConnick's ongoing comic series tells the story of women relegated to another colony for acts such as being too big, too loud, too sexy, not sexy enough, basically any infraction that would be considered non-compliant. Even if you don't love comics, you want to read this text as a manual for resistance against dominating ideas based in patriarchal attitudes about women. There are two collected editions and they are a great start. However, I recommend you get the single editions so you can enjoy all the back matter that makes the series an integral part of feminist community and conversation. If you're like me, wondering why Americans are so addicted to fantasy and lies masquerading as truth, and why we are so prone to believing the most outrageous things, usually by ignoring facts, I recommend reading Kurt Anderson's 2017 book, Fantasyland, How America Went Haywire, A 500-Year History, to find answers. The opening chapters are sober and dense, with methodically laid out history, facts, and historical context, which can be a bit dry, but I understand why Anderson structured the book this way. Such foundational information is necessary, but it can feel heavy while reading it. This is where your trust and faith as a reader is necessary. You must keep reading and trust that the author will start drawing the strings together. And he does. Even among such density lay breathtaking gems of insight. Take this line from chapter one, which is titled, Now Entering Fantasyland. Quote, The American experiment, the original embodiment of the great enlightenment idea of intellectual freedom, every individual free to believe anything she wishes, has metastasized out of control. Or this painfully accurate gem from the end of chapter seven, titled, The First Me Century, Religion Gets America. Quote, as we let a hundred dogmatic iterations of reality bloom, the eventual result was an anything-goes relativism that extends beyond religion to almost every kind of passionate belief. If I think it's true, no matter why or how I think it's true, then it's true, and nobody can tell me otherwise. That's the real-life reductio ad absurdum of American individualism, 
and it would become a credo of Fantasyland. And finally, just to continue whetting your appetite, this highlight-worthy line from Chapter 12, titled Fantastic Business, The Gold Rush Inflection Point, quote, A propensity to dream impossible dreams is like other powerful tendencies, okay when kept in check by common sense, at least in the aggregate and over the long run. For most of its history, America had exactly such a dynamic equilibrium between fantasists and realists, mania and moderation, credulity and skepticism. But as much as we wish for a natural and inevitable balance between those competing forces, like the laws and physics, there's no such mechanism governing civilizations. Societies and cultures can lurch out of balance, as ours would eventually do. If you can't tell from the quotes I selected, this book won't make you feel warm and fuzzy, and it won't make the madness we witness on a daily basis now any better, but it will help you understand the underlying reasons why our nation has lost its collective mind, why even the most sane and reasonable people right now are retweeting and posting falsehoods and radically inaccurate news and claiming them to be the truth. Turns out, we Americans come by this compulsion naturally. It's in our nation's DNA. And Kurt Anderson methodically lays out how and why. So for anyone who wants a thoughtful examination that connects all the various threads together, politicians, religion, academia, the press, advertising, etc., in order to understand how we got to where we are today in how we think and respond to national events and situations that feel so out of control, I recommend reading or listening to this book. Kristen Neff's book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, has been a light in my mornings. Neff, a professor of human development, methodically shows how we create that niggling critic in our heads from a young age, and then just as methodically teaches the reader how to turn down the volume on that critic. For anyone looking to get deeper into yoga and social justice, and consider how compassion works not only for oneself, but with the world at large, I recommend Michael Stone's Yoga for a World Out of Balance, Teaching on Ethics and Social Action, which is a deep dive into how a yoga and meditation practice can inform one's work for social justice. Shortly after our strike was over, our good friend Kevin Mahoney, fellow rabble rouser and also fellow colleague at Kutztown University, gave me a book called No Shortcuts, Organizing for Power in the New Gilded Age by Jane McElvey, and I apologize if I just butchered her name. She argues that we progressives need better organizing skills. She focuses on three change processes, advocacy, mobilizing, and organizing. One particular quote that stands out to me right at the beginning, only organizing can effectively challenge the gross inequality of power in the United States. 
And I have come to see that as absolutely true, not only within the university and our own strike as a faculty, but also just in our society. I think there's an immense inequality in our society. This book is a practical guide to understand how to organize more effectively to grow power and cause actual change, especially for unions, members of the working class, and social justice movements. She gives us a collective path forward that is smart, analytical, and methodical. And I'm only about a third of the way through, but I'm really looking forward to finishing it. I recommend it. I want to encourage you to read two books that will help you connect with contemporary indigenous lives. One by a well-known Ashinaabe writer, the other by a new First Nations voice from Seabird Island Band. First, Pick up Louise Erdrich's The Roundhouse, winner of the National Book Award in 2012. This novel, just like it did for me, will help readers understand the material importance of serenity on the lives of women, a contemporary story of sexual assault and tribal justice. Readers will leave The Roundhouse with a deeper sense of issues facing women living on reservations today. My second recommendation is Therese Marie Mayotte's memoir, Heartberries, a story too relatable to many of its readers focusing on abuse, trauma, and the aftershocks of both. The memoir also explicitly connects the gendered indigenous experience of the past to the lives being lived today by women. The New York Times Review calls the book a, quote, sledgehammer, and I tend to agree. Heartberries will leave the reader wanting more of Mayotte's writing, and I look forward to seeing what her strong voice will bring forth into the world next. Like what you're hearing? Become a patron of our podcast and help us be sustainable. Click that little green Become a Patron button on our Podbean page, and it'll get you started. But here's the cool news. There are three different patron levels that you can participate in to show your love and support of our hard work for you. A monthly commitment of just $1, which is less than the cost of a cup of coffee, gets you a large, cool, square sticker for your computer with our freshly designed logo, and you can share the love. For $5 a month, you get two stickers, a shout-out on Facebook and on the podcast, plus our newest patron level of $8 a month. You'll get all the love and swag of the $1 and $5 levels, but also early access to every episode and expert extra. So join our patron team at this $8 a month level and be in the know before everyone else. All of your donations are greeted with our deepest gratitude. Thanks for keeping us sustainable.